Great. I just, I love him. Yes, yes. He is a true encourager. And uh, so are your beautiful, shining faces. It's really a joy. It's a treat to be with you and to open up God's Word. I hope you'll keep 1 Peter 1 open on your phone or in your Bible uh, because I really want you to wrestle with what Peter is saying more than what I'm saying. I want to stimulate your thinking. Uh, I played a lot of baseball in my time, and I struck out a lot. In fact, at one point in my college, I held two records. I had the record for the highest batting average and the most strikeouts. So you can see what happened on the field. And it didn't help me very much when some old guy in the stands, after I struck out, would yell out, hit the ball. It didn't help at all. It didn't encourage me. It didn't improve my ability to make contact with the ball. And this section that we're moving into that James has read in 1 Peter, if you look at the heading, here's the heading, and I don't know how you hear this, but the heading is, be holy. You could hear it, hey, be holy. You're running around the track in a race. Someone yells out, hey, run faster. You're like, I'm running as fast as I can. Be holy. I don't think that's the way Peter said it. Certainly not what he means. And we've started this journey in 1 Peter titled Victory, written to these exiles, these outsiders, these bedraggled followers of Jesus. And Peter's just been full of praise. But now in verse 13 of chapter 1, we move into the first, what we'll call the imperative section. It's the body of the letter. And C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, he tells the story of a little boy who thought that God was, and I quote, the sort of person who is always snooping around to see if anyone is enjoying himself and then trying to stop it. I don't know if that's how you hear, hey, be holy. One of my fears in moving into this section about holiness is the fact that we really run from someone that gives off this air of moral superiority, kind of the, the holier-than-thou sort of deal. Christian smugness. Oh. Here I am. I'm standing up here. I have the microphone. I'm talking. And we really recoil from preachiness, moralism, you know? And I just pray. I just pray that as you see what Peter has to say, and as I try to wrestle with this idea of holiness, that you won't hear any of that. Because I stand up here one that says, how could I possibly talk about holiness? I'm so grateful for Jasmine's worship, the worship team. Man, did you, did you, did you let that fill you up this morning? Toxic holiness makes us sick. Healthy holiness leads to life. That's what Peter wants. He wants life. So we're going to 
kind of look at the different sides of this healthy holiness. A little bit like a diamond, and I see three sides. One, holiness is received as a gift. Two, holiness grows out of a relationship. And three, holiness always moves toward health. All right? Holiness is received as a gift. That's what Peter's saying. The beginning of his letter Peter is just filled with wonder. May we never lose the wonder of who Jesus is and what he has granted to us. It's a celebration of praise. Peter is just sort of overwhelmed. There's humility. Peter, verse 1, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, scattered all over your exiles, your chosen chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. And then notice what he says in verse 3 of chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. It's a gift. Holiness is a gift granted by a loving, gracious Father through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. He goes on. New birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Holiness is a gift. I want to remind you that holiness is our present possession if we're in Christ. I am a child of God. No matter how I feel about that, no matter how much I struggle along the way with feeling like a failure, struggling with temptations, and thoughts, and jealousies, and anger, and bitterness. My holiness is a gift granted by the Father to me. If you are in Jesus, you're holy. You currently, right now, are this morning holy. Verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, think about it. Engage your mind. Think about this. Set your hope on the what? On the grace to be brought to you when Jesus is revealed at his coming. The word grace, word charis. We think about it as grace, but it's also translated gift. It's a gift. Grace is a gift. When you hear grace, know that this grace is gifted to you. Focus on that. Think about it. Believe that it's true. Accept that you have a new identity in Christ, and it is holy. Verse 18. I think the core of this passage, Peter says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold, that you were what? You were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. 
but it was with the precious blood of Christ. There's the key word. Maybe one of my favorite words in the scriptures. You were redeemed. It's a Greek word, lutrao. I love it. It means to be rescued. It means to be ransomed. It's a word that talks about being rescued from a situation in which you were powerless to save yourself. Think about that for a moment. I'm desperate. I am lost. I have nowhere to turn. I've run out of resources. I don't have it in me. And in that moment, Jesus came in a helicopter and rappelled down. There's another nuance to this word rescue. It's translated as ransom. There's always a purchase price that goes with the ransom. And Peter tells us it was the precious blood of Jesus. It was not any material wealth that we happen to have at the moment. No, it was the life blood of Jesus shed on the cross. He gave his life in the rescue operation to save you from a situation in which you were powerless to save yourself. You know, it's ironic because the same word holy is used by the authors of the New Testament to talk about Christians, to talk about individual Christians, holy. Now, they translated saints, so you've seen that a lot. You know, Paul talks to different Christians as uh, in his greetings. He, he calls all the saints at the church in Corinth. Now, that is super ironic because if you know anything about the church in Corinth, it was the, the kind of the most scaggy, like immoral, disobedient, um, out on the town, overdoing it with the communion wine, sleeping with the wrong people. And Paul says, greetings to the saints in Corinth. That is just like impossible because Paul understood that our holiness is a gift as God sees us through this life of Christ. Now, let's not stay there in Corinth. There's a lot more that he says. In fact, Paul calls the whole church holy. Paul calls the church in Ephesians the holy bride, the beautiful bride. The church, and believe me, the river church, I mean, you know, beautiful people, but we can sometimes, at least from a staff perspective, we can hardly keep it together. I mean, sometimes we don't know what's coming next and we don't plan well and we forget things and we're overstretched and we get our priorities all mixed up. And, you know, I mean, let's face it, we're, we're just a group of people that are doing the best we can. We love each other. We love God, but we don't always get it right. And Paul says, you're the beautiful bride dressed in white. And let me tell you, the church today in America, there's just a lot of critique and criticism, but never forget this basic foundational point that the church in all of its dysfunction is the beautiful bride of Christ. And in Jesus, you are part of that. So that's the foundation. Holiness is an undeserved gift coming from outside of us, given to us by our Father through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. 
I grew up in the church and I walked away from God so many times. I couldn't figure it out. I wasn't interested. I didn't want anything to do with God, but he grabbed a hold of my life. And at 17, I got baptized. And for the first time, I stood up in front of a group of people scared to death. And I told them that I was surrendering my life to Jesus and I wanted to follow him. And he was going to be my Lord to the best of my ability. And then the pastor took me and dunked me under the water, symbolizing my death along with Jesus on the cross. And then he pulled me back out of that water, symbolizing my resurrection into new life with Jesus. And my life, well, it hasn't always been holy since then. But as I struggle and wrestle with, when was my name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? When can I say I was truly a follower of Jesus, a Christian? I don't know. I wrestled with that and wondered many, many times. But I can go back to that moment when I got baptized. And I can say, from that point on, I've had no doubts. I'm on his team. I'm going with him. And he said, like he did to Jesus in his baptism, you're my beloved son. I want to take a moment, just quiet. I want to give you an opportunity to think, because you know there's a lot of voices, a lot of voices in our head, a lot of voices in our heart. They come from all sorts of places. We live in a crazy, mixed up, confused world. There's a lot of voices. I want you just in a moment of silence. I just want you to begin to identify some of the voices that tell you you don't measure up. You're anything but holy. You're not a good Christian. God must not be pleased with you. I just want you to, in a moment, to, to identify some of those voices, where they come from. Now, I apologize. You may have to go do therapy after this moment of silence. But then, I just want you to hear the Father say to you, you're my beloved child. You're my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. And with you, I am well pleased. And there are so many voices that push that away, just in silence. Let's just be quiet. If you want to close your eyes. Holiness is received as a gift. But secondly, holiness grows out of a relationship. A relationship between a father and a child. You see verse 3 of chapter 1? We've been given this new birth into a living hope. Peter considers us little babies. All the little 
buns in the oven that now are bursting into this world as little babies that his parents have to, have to care for them. We're children in a family. It's this idea that we're born into a family. God is our father. He says in verse 14, as obedient, what? Children. And verse 17, since you call on a father. It's talking about a relationship. I love the way Eugene Peterson in the message translates verse 14. Listen to it. Don't lazily slip back into those old grooves of evil doing just what you feel like doing. You didn't know any better than you do now. What Peter's talking about is we were born as babies and now we're growing up. We're maturing in our relationship with our father. He says, as obedient children, let yourselves be pulled into a way of life shaped by God's life. There's there's the key. Be pulled into a way of life shaped by God's life. Like father, like son. He says, a life energetic and blazing with holiness. When I was growing up, I was not uh, particularly good at school. Didn't get good grades, didn't care, wasn't interested. Didn't like books, I didn't read books. I played sports. I chased after girls. Wasn't interested in that academic life. The ironic part is that my dad's an academic. He's always been around books, he's been a professor, been a college administrator. Always reading, always thinking. When I was a child, I felt different than my dad. I moved out of high school into college, had some professors that just ignited inside of me a love for learning. Went on to lots and lots of years of graduate school. Became a student. I'm still a student. I love books. If you were to come into my office, into Todd's office, and there was an earthquake, you'd die from being buried by books. I look at my life back then, and I think, I am so much like my father. I didn't know it as a child. I felt so different and distant. But over time, being around him, being around his love of learning, his role modeling for me, I love books. Like father, like son, that's what Peter's talking about. We begin to take on the characteristics of our father. So here's the troublesome verse, verse 15. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Oh, that can feel like such a burden. For it is written in Leviticus, in the law, it is written, be holy because I am holy, God says. What do we do with that? How do we wrestle with that idea? And I thought about it a lot, and I looked at and studied sort of what is behind this. And, of course, at times you can look at the Greek language and the tenses used. And here this idea of be holy in all you do is in the aorist tense, which is typically a point in action. And you can hear that as be holy, run faster, hit the ball. But it's not only an aorist, it's an ingressive aorist. And this is the nuance here. 
Stay with me. It's the idea of an entrance into a state of being. In other words, be holy is like the doorway that Lucy walked through in the wardrobe into the land of Narnia. And the ingressive heiress not only talks about the doorway, but the adventure that followed Lucy as she went into Narnia. You see that? We have had a new identity declared through the blood of Jesus. And we are holy. And we're invited to step through that doorway of a new identity into a world of adventure where our holiness will take on the characteristic and the likeness of our Father in whom we're in a loving relationship. So you could really translate it like this. Verse 15, just as he, your Father, who called you is holy, so be becoming holy. You get that? Be, you already are, be, you enter into the state, you walk through the doorway, be becoming. We are becoming like our Father as we relate to him. On July 7th, Cynthia and I will celebrate our 34th wedding anniversary. I can remember we got married. The pastor said, you know, uh, the eyes of God and, and the laws of this state, I now declare that you are husband and wife. Who in the crowd cheers? We're married. And then later she told me on her honeymoon, a couple days in, she looked across the breakfast table at me and she thought, what have I done? <laughs> yeah? See, we were married technically, right? In the eyes of God and the laws of the state of California, we were married. We had a, a, a marriage license. Were we married? Yeah, sort of. Now, 34 years later, we can finish each other's sentences, which my wife tells me to stop doing. We know each other. We love each other. We, we, we have a relationship where we've become one. That's what Peter's talking about. Holiness grows out of a relationship. I want to invite you into an experiment, just for a moment. And you can pick which experiment. The first one I want you to imagine, and you'll, you'll close your eyes in a moment. I want you to imagine what it would feel like to be invited into your first dance at the wedding of you and Jesus. Jesus the groom, you the bride. What would it feel like? What would it look like for him to extend his arm to you and you to walk out onto the dance floor and for him to begin that first dance? That's experiment number one. Or you could choose this. I want you to imagine going into the amazing temple of heaven and you see the father and he invites you as a as a child to walk into the room and to walk up to him and he says come on I want you to sit in my lap and he puts his arms around you I want you to imagine that what what does it feel like what what emotions, what, what discomforts, what hesitancies 
come your way as you think about walking onto the dance floor or up onto Jesus, up onto the Father's lap. So let's just be quiet for a moment. Holiness grows out of a relationship. And the work we have to do in growing into holiness is wrestling with the discomfort we have with taking Jesus' hand and dancing and crawling up into his lap as a father. Because right now, we are holy. And Jesus invites us into the dance. And the Father invites us onto his lap. My final thought, number three, holiness moves toward health. Verse 13, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober... Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Literally, this means gird your minds for action. Because we have a job to do. Holiness is not just about sitting and soaking it in, though that is vitally important. Holiness moves us toward health. I read A.W. Tozer's. Classic, the knowledge of the holy. And listen to what he says. A.W. Tozer says, God is holy and he has made holiness the condition necessary to the health of his universe. Isn't that good? Holiness is necessary to the the condition of of the health of the universe. Whatever is holy is healthy. Evil... Evil is a sickness that will end ultimately in death. It's like, it's like an, a virus or an infection that has gotten into the system and it's touched us all. And holiness is the eradication of that virus. And Tozer goes on to say, the formation of the language itself suggests this. The English word holy Driving from the Anglo-Saxon halig or hal means well or whole. To be holy is to be well. It's to be healthy. Holiness is healthiness. The old English dictionary translates it healthy, uninjured, whole. The story of the Bible is the story of God's restoration project. The story of the Bible is all about his rescue operation. 
It's about his shalom. The garden, perfect shalom, relationship between the humans and God. And an infection, an injury has come in and it's resulted in brokenness and pain and shame and hurt. God's project is to make us whole and not broken. God's project in the Bible is for human flourishing through the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And we are invited to be formed by the Father and to move the story forward. That's where we're at on the timeline, to move God's story forward. Not a finger-pointing shame, holiness, but a healthy holiness. See, there was the creation, then there was the fall. God handpicked Israel to be his people, to be a light to the nations. They couldn't do it, so God sent Jesus, the representative man, the man who did for us what we could not do for ourselves, who rescued us from a situation in which we're powerless to save ourselves. And Jesus invited 12 followers who were told to go out and make other followers. He formed the church. We're the bride. We're the beautiful bride who's now taking the story forward. Where there's hurt, we go in. Where there's shame, we go in. Where there's dysfunction, we go in. Where there's hopelessness, we go in. Where there's danger, we go in. Where there's orphans, we go in. I'm inspired by an illustration that C.S. Lewis gives in Mere Christianity. He talks about boats, boats crossing the English Channel. And he says, for that to be successful, all those boats, number one, those boats got to have a, a sound engine. They, they got to be internally, that, that's the spiritual formation, you know, our relationship with God. And then those boats have to make sure they don't run into each other or stray too far away from one another. And third, they, they got to have the same destination. They're moving together. They have a purpose. They have a goal. And it made me think about the rescue operation that took place at Dunkirk during World War II. Have you seen the recent 2017 film, Dunkirk? Powerful, powerful scene near the end of the film where over 300,000 French, Belgium, and British troops were trapped in the town of Dunkirk and on its wide sandy beaches because the German Nazis had done a pincer move and had trapped them. There was no way out except going into the sea. And now the planes are coming and strafing them and they're blowing bombs. I mean, they're all dying. So a general got this idea. He began to put out the call to, 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 to Britain, particularly the people that were by the River Thames. He began to say, we need boats. The big boats can't get in. We need, we need small boats. We need any boats. We need your boats. We need yachts. We need tugboats. We need, we need pleasure craft. We need anything, anybody with a boat. Fire it up. Get down the river. Leave Ramsgate and go across the channel to Dunkirk. An incredibly 
dangerous, crazy mission. If you remember the film, they did. And there they are, all these wonky boats and just pleasure craft and, 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 and people captaining their boat who had no business being out in a war. And the courage to say, our brothers are over there. We're going to go rescue them. That's where we're at. Holiness always leads to health. And health puts us on a mission to make this world a place that expresses God's shalom. And it's made possible by the blood of Jesus. Jasmine, why don't you come up? The band, why don't you guys come up? We're going to transition. We're, we're going to come to the Lord's table. And this is not just something that we do. This is, this is nourishment for the soul and for the body because we've been called. We've been called to be the tip of the spear to go out into this world and bring health and wholeness because of Jesus. And that's what makes the river so remarkable. We don't organize it, you just do it. In your neighborhoods, in your homes, with your children, in our schools, with people coming out of incarceration, with people needing to get jobs, with family members who are in deep pain, some of you have chosen careers that actually move you out into the middle of the English Channel. And you may feel like you've got a ramshackle boat that can barely make it. And there's enemies all around you. Peter says, in Jesus, there is victory. And there may be scars. And there's going to be a lot of pain. But he says, you're my sons, you're my daughters. I want you to go. Why don't you lead us? When you're ready, come on up to the table.